When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Game Misconduct Podcast with Don LaGreca. And welcome to the Monday edition of Game Misconduct. I'm Don LaGreca. Monday usually means EJ Raddick, but he's busy now. He's doing play-by-play. He's got NHL now, but we did corner him for a show today. How are you, buddy? <laughs> I feel cornered. <laughs> well, you're better when the fangs and claws are out, so this should be a good one. Yes, and you're it's always there's always me and you time. So that's there's always time for that. So yeah, this is it. yeah, this is gonna be a lot of fun. But you know, unfortunately you have to start off on a somber note. And you're actually the perfect person to have on to talk about the life and times of Clark Gillies. We got word uh early um just a couple of days ago, I guess it was right you know, pretty much after they played their game that we heard about the passing of Clark Gillies. And I know you growing up as a fan right in the heart of that four-cup run and, and what, what he meant to the franchise, the Hall of Fame player. Just your thoughts, just a, a fan and somebody that I'm sure got to know him a little bit, uh, uh, just to his life and, and his passing the other day. Yeah, I was I was really fortunate to get to know a lot of those guys. I mean, you know, at night when I have a quiet moment and I think about my life, I've been so blessed. And so fortunate that, I mean, I was a kid growing up who loved sports and really fell in love with hockey. And I kind of kind of jumped on that Islander team, was an expansion team when uh, they came in 72. I can remember their first season and uh, their first win against the L.A. Kings. And uh, Jermaine Gagnon scored the first goal, or scored the game-winning goal in that game against the Kings. And their big win against the Bruins that year with Esposito and Orr. I guess the Bruins must have been out very late that night because the Islanders rung them up for, I think, five in the first period and ended up winning, I think, nine to seven or some crazy score. And then they got to be a great team with, you know, just legendary players and uh, one of the greatest teams ever to to play anywhere, really. And, uh, and then as I got fortunate enough to be in the business, I got to know a lot of these guys. And I got to get to meet, got to meet the Tonellis and the Trottiers and the Potmans and the Bossies and work with some of them, Butch Goring and Kenny Morrow and just goes on and on. And, you know, I got to meet Clark uh, on many occasions. I saw him in October actually at a golf outing that uh, it was, he was, we were at separate golf outings at the same golf course, Nassau Country Club. And, got to spend really 10 or 15 minutes chatting with him then. And when I look back on that now, I just feel like so really just was so fortunate that I got that time with him. But the biggest thing for me, Don, is just that it's just so, it was so sudden and it was so shocking for, you know, I, those in the family and the, the inner circle knew that something had gone amiss health wise. Most people did not. And, um, I literally was in my office on Friday night just in tears. Yeah. Because of what he 
meant to me in terms of like that team meant to me. And he was someone, Don, that I just never thought would ever pass away. I mean, he was, he was a mountain of a guy in so many ways, really. And you just never thought Clark Gillies would ever be sick or ever be, would ever pass away. He was Clark Gillies. And he was a great player, as we all know, and he was part of a great team. But the thing that I really want to emphasize is all the terrific work he did on Long Island, which, you know, I, I didn't, I never grew up on Long Island. I've never lived on Long Island. I've gone out there, obviously, for the Islander games as a kid and spent a lot of time at the Nassau Coliseum. And, but hearing the stories from other people about the work that he did in that community, I mean, this is a guy from Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, comes in there, and, and he made Long Island his home with his family. And uh, that, to me, I mean, his legacy is, is endures for many many reasons and i uh, like i said it really shook me up i gotta be honest with you really really shook me up and uh you know i just my sympathy to his family and you know justin Bourne, who's in the business who's bobby Bourne's son he's married to clark's daughter brianna and um so my condolences to to all and uh and to all hockey fans because we lost a great a great person on friday yeah, and got a chance to know him when we originally had the Islander broadcasts on 1050 back in the early 2000s when they went to the playoffs three straight years with Peter Laviolette as the head coach, and we would do shows. And I think I'd see you there on occasion, EJ, at that Champions Sports Bar at the Marriott across the parking lot from the Coliseum. And we would be doing the show, and, like, to the right there was a pool table, and, you know, Clark would be playing with Billy Smith. Like, the guy, they were just part – of the organization. I mean, those four straight Stanley Cups, EJ, you know better than anybody, is so ingrained in so many of the childhoods of people our age that follow that team. And a lot of those guys made their home on Long Island and returned to games and was just part of the fabric of things that went beyond the games that they played. And he was such a gentleman, so easy to talk to. It was, yeah, just it was really just a gut punch to hear of his passing the way that we did. What a great, you know, what a great smile. Like, when I think about Clark Gillies, I just think about he was just a fun-loving guy, and he had a great, he had a great grin, and uh, he liked a good time, as a lot of his really close friends and teammates have talked about. And uh, just a terrific person. And, you know, I, you know, remembering that team and you know, 75, they had that kind of miracle run as a third-year team, and they got – to the semifinal, game seven against Philly. And then they had the learning experiences of the next several years, running into a great, great Montreal team on a couple of occasions, getting upset by the Leafs, getting upset by the Rangers, and then morphing into a team that uh, was battle-tested and would go on to win 19 consecutive Stanley Cup series. And, you know, really right to the end, I can remember that last series against the the Edmonton Oilers, and you can remember that year was a, a year that they went to the 2-3-2 two, two format, mm-hmm. where it was two games on the island, three games in Edmonton, and then two games, if necessary, on Long Island. And in game one, the Islanders played really well in that game. I mean, they were this was a team that was kind of, they were, they were finding, they were in the final that year because they just knew how to get there. I mean, they had played a lot of hockey. There was a lot of miles on those guys at that point. And they played a great game one at like 37 shots on goal, somewhere like that. And Brad Fuhr just played a terrific game. And then in game two, 
Clark Gillies had a hat trick, and the Otters won 6-1. to one, And it was kind of that last gap for for that great, great team in terms of championships. And, you know, I always wondered if they would have played a 2-2-1-1-1 two, two, one, one, one format, if they could have got back to Long Island and kind of regrouped. But, but right to the end, Clark Gillies was, uh, you know, he was a battler. And uh, that was a great performance in game two of that final that year go along with many, many great performances that he had throughout his career, and as everyone knows, someone who could could score, he could play, he was with Bossy and, and uh, Trache on that Trio Grande line, which was a great, great line, And but then he was also a guy that, you know, held everybody accountably physically in an era when that was really a big part of the game, and, you know, I'll just say this, Don, and, is that as a fan, and I mean, I was a fan at that time, I was a, in my teens and early 20s. When a guy fights, when a guy fights for you, for his team and his teammates, as a fan, I think you feel like he fights for you a little bit. And I think those guys hold a special place in our hearts. And you know, guys like Bobby Nystrom and 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 uh, Clark Gillies and earlier years Gary Howard. I mean, those guys are unique players in that regard in their relationship to the fans. So. Clark Gillies wasn't someone that was uh, a mean guy by nature. He didn't want to. He didn't really want to fight all that much. He wanted to play hockey, but he understood that it was part of the job, and he did it as well as anyone. Yeah. So rest in peace, Clark Gillies passes away on Friday at the age of sixty-seven. Uh, before we get to the actual NHL portion of the podcast, DJ, and I know your time is limited, uh, we'd be remiss not to at least speak on the incident between Jacob Panetta and Jordan Subban in the ECHL. Uh, over the weekend, and I, I want to read a statement from the NHL uh, that came out after the incident. It, Incidents of racism, whether they occur in hockey or anywhere else, are abhorrent. The NHL will continue to make its resources available to the hockey ecosystem to educate and inform with the goal of making the game welcome and safe for all players and fans. Now, I appreciate that statement, EJ, and I'm not here to beat up the NHL. I'm kind of just here to kind of beat up on the system a little bit here. Are we past education and information? As far as if you live in this day and age and you think that kind of behavior that Panetta uh, uh, displayed, does that come from ignorance or, or actual hatred and and to eradicate that kind of behavior? Because if you lived in these day and times over the last couple of years, EJ, how would you ever think that what he did to Jordan, and if you want to see it, you can find it on on YouTube or you can find it on Twitter or social media to see the video, uh, of why you would ever think that's acceptable behavior. I'm, I'm tired of always using the enabling phrase of ignorance. You know, sometimes these are just bad people, and these are people that need to be eradicated out. So I just wish the statement from the NHL would be stronger that there's no place for this, and, and players like Jacob Panetta with that behavior are not welcome in our league. So I get frustrated, EJ, and again, I'm not here to beat up anybody, but I, I – I'm just kind of tired of hearing about education and information and just start feeling like, you know what, maybe it's just time to separate the good people from the bad people. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's these kind of topics are, you know, they're, uh, they're tough topics, right? Um, I would say that, uh, I mean, you know me pretty well. I'm a zero-tolerance guy when it comes to bad behavior of any kind. Yes. Uh, so, and you've known me for... 20 some odd years now and uh you know that's that's it for me i mean but you know when 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 children are born 
they're not born with any kind of hatred towards people because of their skin color or differences. And, you know, we all grow up in different environments, and there are some people that grow up in environments that that gets that, that's commonplace in those households in which they grow up. And, and it's unfortunate. And I'd like to, you know, we'd like to think in a perfect world that, uh, you know, everybody would treat everybody with equal respect. But we know from, even if you just crack open a history book for two minutes about yeah. the history of this country and the history of the world, that is not the case. So I think we're always trying to, to use those words, we're always trying to educate people who maybe have come up in a different environment and have had that kind of put into their their soul and in their being and try to get them to another place. We've seen instances where, you know, there have been people who have changed, and you can hope for that. Um, in the case of this one with Panetta, he put out his own video. I don't know if you got to see it, but, you know, his claim is that he was not making any kind of racial gesture towards Jordan, but he was doing this kind of tough guy thing that Tom Wilson does in the penalty box from time to time, and he mm -hmm. claims that he's done it before, and he didn't realize that uh, it may have been misconstrued as something else, and I mean, only he knows in his heart what he meant yeah. to do there. I think there is room for consideration, and he says that he's done it before, and if people come up with video of him doing it before, we've seen Tom Wilson does it, has done it, I mean, I guess you have to, you have to maybe consider that as well. But the thing that really bothered me watching the tape of the incident was the, some of the racial slurs that were being yelled from the crowd that I could I could hear yeah. in the background. So, I mean, it's a big, big problem. It's a deep problem in our country. We haven't really wanted to fully address it in more than 200 years, unfortunately. We've gotten away. We've taken a lot of steps. We're much further down the road, obviously. But it's still a challenge, and uh, we still have to fight that fight, that good fight every day. And I think, you know, good people of, that want uh, everybody to be treated equally um, will fight that fight. And, you know, that's about all we can do. And as for these yeah. innocents, when they happen, if they're, if they're cut dry and it's clear, then for me, that's a zero-tolerance situation. In this case, with Panetta, I guess we have to, we'll have to sort through his comments and and his feelings, but in the end, only he knows in his heart what he meant. But uh, you That's know, a true. lot will have to do with oh. maybe a conversation with him and Jordan that they'll have to continue to have. And I think uh, you know that's where Panetta is going to have to kind of find his his piece is to have to try to reach out to Jordan and have those those that conversation with them and see if they can come to some kind of understanding about what was meant there. But, you know, I don't like seeing any of it. I was in Russia for the uh, way back when during the first sort of the big work stoppage in 0405 and there was the uh, the kind of Gretzky All-Stars. That wasn't the Gretzky All-Stars. It was the IMG All-Stars. It was the second one. Gretzky had done one of those, I guess, in 95. And Anson Carter was playing uh, on the team and we were in, I think we were in Moscow or St. Petersburg and Somebody threw a banana on the ice, and uh, you know that was uh, as meant as a racial yeah. slur. And uh, you know that was the first time I saw that. And I know talking to 
other black players that I've talked to over the years, Kevin Weeks, who I've become very close with and work with all the time, and Anson and others, it's not uncommon for them growing up in Canada and playing junior hockey to have heard that stuff. And you know, we can only hope that we can continue to move forward or work forward towards getting that kind of behavior out of the out of the wash, so to speak, of our society. Oh, but, of course. And, and, and everybody deserves their day in court, so to speak, and, and obviously you don't want to rush to judgment on anything. It's, it's just a general theme yeah. that it just um, – there's a culture here that just needs to be explored much deeper than I think it, than it has been. And I, and, I, and I do applaud that things are starting to turn and things are starting to change. Yeah. Yeah, well, I see uh, – I see – I can tell you this. In my time coaching youth hockey, I've coached only – there's only been really, unfortunately, and this is really unfortunate, there's only been a handful of, of black players that, uh, you know, play in youth hockey that I've coached. Now, I don't, I haven't coached in an urban area where there's, you know, there's the great program. Neil Henderson runs that great program out of the Washington, D.C. area. The guys in hockey in Newark and hockey in Jersey do a great job. And there's all kinds of programs all over North America and Canada. But... In my experience, I mean, there have not been a lot of black players. And i it's really something that I, I think about, the experience that they have as being really a very, you know, a real clear minority in those situations. Like what it must be like for a young child playing in those situations when, the occasion, you know, when on occasion those things do happen. And I mean, I, I know those situations have happened, and it must just be... Uh, it's heart-wrenching to think about. And, uh, you know, it's got to change. Yeah. And all we can do on a day-to-day basis is all do our best to try to make a change. And when things happen, there really have to be – I agree with you. There has to be strong consequences that take place to deter that behavior as best we can. And then to try to reach out and to help people try to change their way of thinking if it's possible. If it is possible, yeah, that's for sure. So I know that was kind of deep, but you're a deep thinker. You're always pretty uh... – articulate when it comes to subjects like this so i i wanted to throw that by you i, I know your time is limited i wanted to try to get some hockey stuff in here before we have to let you go and I, i've talked about this quite a bit ej i have to still give the islanders their their, their day uh and, and a chance here because they've only played 34 games but they're really up against it but when you look at the rest all the teams that are on the outside looking in, in the east i know detroit is close right they're eight points back, but yet still they've played four more games than Boston. Columbus hasn't been able to gain traction. New Jersey either. Are the Islanders really the only team that realistically can make it in the east of the teams that are on the outside looking in? I think that's probably true. Uh, you know, Detroit has had a good year, but, I mean, the Islanders have the kind of team. They, I mean, this is a team that went to the Final Four the last two years. So, for me... You know, this is still a team that could put together a stretch of winning, and they've got some games in hand. But I, I, I think it's going to be a really, really hard run. And to be honest with you, and the listeners, I mean, I'll be shocked if anybody outside those eight teams are in the playoffs. Because, I mean, and the only thing that really – the only team to me, at least at right now, that I see could be vulnerable is Boston only because with the Marchand injury, depending upon how significant that is, Right, that could that could change things for them a little bit and make it harder for them. But the Islanders have to start winning games against better teams. I mean, that's the problem for the Islanders. I mean, they played the Capitals last week. They lost. 
at home. They played the Leafs at home. They lost. I mean, those are four points. They got nothing in those two games. And when you look at when you break down their season, I mean, it's almost uh, it's almost a pretty straight split. I mean, the teams that are not playoff teams, they beat. The teams that are playoff teams, they don't. So they're going to have to turn it around dramatically. And if they let's say they got forty games left, I'd say they'd probably have to win thirty of them. Yeah. To get there, and and hope then that somebody, Boston, Washington, somebody falters. So I think it's going to be really difficult. I'm of the mind, Donnie, that the teams that are in right now, the eight teams, are going to be the teams that are in the playoffs, and it's just going to be a matter of what team is in what spot. But that said, strange things can happen, and the old thing. That's why they play the games. So. What's more surprising to you, EJ, the fact that the Rangers are in first place or that Chris Kreider is tied for goals? <laughs> I guess that Chris Kreider is tied for goal lead, right? I mean, I, I, I mean, the Rangers have – we knew the Rangers were going to be better this year. And they have a lot of talent. And, uh, you know, they're a team that was – you know, the arrow's been pointing up. So, while well, I'm surprised that, you know, they're in first place at this point of the season. And they're another team that still has – you know, they got some challenges ahead of them, and I think they're going to be so much fun for their fans to watch this year and, and over the next several years to see. It reminds me, we started out this conversation talking about Clark Gillies and the Islanders and that journey from the early 70s through 1980 when they won the Stanley Cup. It's a different world and a different league now. And, but uh, the Rangers have a really terrific group of players, so uh, you know they're going to be fun to, to see, the, see what, what path they can chart moving forward, but Chris Kreider has looked like a different guy to me right from the start. And I used, I've been on my show a couple of times. He almost looks like a guy that wants to be the captain of the team. And, uh, you know, that was the whole thing, right? They gave out all those A's and, and, and they didn't name a captain. And it seemed like people were, you know, let's face it. People do campaign in their own ways to get things that they want. And uh, Chris Kreider, to me, has been a leader in every sense of the word this year. And, uh, you know, again, I'll go back to Gillies. I mean, Chris Kreider is a big, strong man that is a really talented hockey player. And uh, I think that he's taken his game, you know, like Clark, taking his game to uh, to another level this year. So uh, we'll see how things go over the last half of the year. But, boy, he's been terrific. Well, I know you got to fly. If you want more of E.J. Raddick, NHL now, 4 o'clock Eastern time on the NHL Network. EJ, always a pleasure, buddy. I'll talk to you next week. All right. You got it, Tony. Take care. All right. That's the great, and I mean great, EJ Raddick. A lot of deep thinking stuff here on the podcast, but uh, I knew he'd be able to handle it. Of course, I knew that he had a relationship with uh, Clark Gillies, both as a fan and as a professional, and I just wanted to get his thoughts on the ECHL thing. And I know a lot of people roll their eyes when they hear this. Hey, I just want to talk hockey, but I, I think that it was just an important subject to broach. Um, especially since it's the first podcast we've done since the incident. And I just, um, it's really distasteful. I know PK Subban, Jordan's brother, uh, was very expressive on Twitter about it. And Malcolm as well, uh, his other brother. And, um, you know, certainly the things that they've had to go through, I'm sure, are unspeakable. And I'm glad they were able to both stand out and, and not just defend their brother, but, you know, what's going on and how distasteful. Uh, it is. Uh, the other big story, and it's coming up uh, later on tonight at 7 o'clock when the Flyers play host to the Dallas Stars. And that, of course, is Keith Yandel is going to play in consecutive game 964. That will tie him with Doug Jarvis for the most consecutive games ever played in hockey. That's the Ironman uh, streak that the NHL offers. And 
it's a tough road. I mean, because hockey is a very difficult sport to play. Um, and to be able to play that many games in a row, that many different teams that Keith has been on in recent years. And, and also, you hold your breath every game that he was playing here down the stretch because of COVID. You'd, you'd hate to see him test positive and go into COVID protocol and not be able to continue the streak. But looks like all's a go for tonight for him to at least tie um, at 964. And I know Doug Jarvis has been paying close attention to it. And then tomorrow, Philadelphia is going to be on the island. So that record will be all his own wishful thinking uh, knock on wood uh, over the next um, you know 72 hours where he will have that record all to himself but for how long he'll have it because the second it does come to an end there's somebody else creeping up Phil Kessel's played in 940 consecutive games he's third all-time on the list so sometime this year he'll also pass Doug Jarvis and it'll be great to see them both get over a thousand and continue to play but it's been tough for Philadelphia though and for Arizona for that matter uh, both teams not going to the playoffs. Arizona's in a rebuild. Philadelphia is just a, in a mess right now. 11 consecutive games without a win. Two separate 10-game winless streaks already this season, and they've played 41 games. So it has just been an unbelievably bad season for Philadelphia. you got to assume that Claude Giroux is going to get traded at some point. We discussed that uh, back the other day, um, that that will be a piece to finally move to Forget about the pipe dream of sneaking into the playoffs and just accepting your fate here and just start to rebuild. There's enough young pieces to build around there uh, in Philadelphia, and certainly Giroux had a couple of goals in the loss on Saturday to the Buffalo Sabres. And and, and how about um, Kreps getting his first two National Hockey League goals? You're starting to maybe see some light at the end of the tunnel with Buffalo with some of these young players, but certainly uh, lights out right now for Philadelphia uh, and their season. Congratulations. Um, you have to go out to um, Bruce Boudreau, uh, 1,000 career games coach. That's uh, pretty amazing for him. So he's had a tremendous career. Things have slowed down a little bit in Vancouver since he got there, but he's immediately had an impact on that team from really going nowhere and kind of uh, hitting a dead end with Travis Green as the head coach. And then Boudreau, uh, Bruce jumped in there, did a pretty decent job, but now kind of things coming to roost here at Canucks still having um, their issues and their problems. Um, but uh, talking about the games tonight, we mentioned the Philadelphia game. Uh, the other game uh, that I'll be paying attention to, Rangers and the Kings, I'll be on the pre and post for that. Looks like no Heedle. Uh, he's week to week. Uh, it's a day-to-day situation for Capo Caco, who was pulled moments before the game against the uh, Coyotes on Saturday night. So it uh, looks like um, Barron's going to be in. There, there was a possibility that Gallant was thinking about maybe playing 7-D and 11 forwards tonight against the Kings, who played last night, come from behind victory for them against the New Jersey Devils, uh, a 3-2 win. So the Rangers trying to maintain first place, although you know Carolina's got four games in hand. And, uh, and don't get crazy about Carolina's loss to New Jersey. I don't know if people saw that the Rangers and the Hurricanes played on Saturday and Hurricanes really beat up on New York, uh, a 6-3 win. Both teams had trouble getting out of Carolina because of snow. Rangers got out. Carolina didn't. Uh, the Rangers didn't get home into their beds until about 4.30 in the morning. It certainly affected their first period against Arizona on Saturday. Lucky they were playing Arizona. They got their sea legs and eventually won the game 7-3. Meanwhile, Carolina never got them back and lost to the Devils 7-4 because they had to wait and then travel day of the game and the Devils were able to take advantage of that and get a win but Carolina's had an amazing season four games in hand on the Rangers so even though the Rangers have the two-point lead still four games in hand Arizona uh, Hurricanes certainly the best team uh, in that division so um, those are some of the uh, highlight games tonight I uh, want to get to your tweets at Don LaGreca hashtag game misconduct 
And we start with Jake, who says, was just curious on your thoughts on the Eastern Conference playoff situation. It seems like the top eight teams are distancing themselves from the rest of the field. Do you feel any team not in the playoffs in the East has a shot of cracking the top eight? Again, Detroit's young, in a rebuild. I mean, they've gotten some amazing play from some of their younger players, but to make up an eight-point gap, to be able to um, have four more games played than Boston, even with Marchand out of the lineup, that's uh, probably too much for Detroit to do. I don't think Columbus is ready. I don't think New Jersey is ready. Philadelphia is in free fall. So really the only team you look at are the Islanders just because of the number of games at hand and the recent history. But I, I'm kind of with EJ. I think we're set with our eight playoff teams. Donnell says, as, as diehard New York sports fan of the tri-state area, New York, New Jersey, that watches all three local hockey teams, Islanders, Rangers, and Devils, Rest in peace, number nine, Clark Gillies. Never seen him play. Nice guy and part of a big dynasty in NHL history. He'll be missed. Well said, uh, Donnell. Uh, David says, is Rick Bonus feeling the hot seat in Dallas? I know coaches can get angry and animated, but it seems to be having his share of meltdowns on a frequent basis this season. It's just, Dallas has been so strange when you look at like some of the wins that they had and then they lose to Montreal. But, again, look at that Montreal game. They had like 52 shots on goal. Um Montembeau was just unbelievable for the Canadians, and that's why they lost that game. It's frustrating. I don't know what the long-term prognosis is for their head coach. I think um, Bonus was probably somebody who was thought was kind of an interim thing. So uh, I don't know what's going to happen with the coaching situation there. And we're kind of you know clock ticking on Dave Tippett, although that was a big win for Edmonton on Saturday night against uh, the Calgary Flames. Um, Eli says, how stupid is it that the best goaltender in the league this year won't be at the All-Star game, all because Adam Pellick has to go. We had this conversation a bunch. I, I think it's important for every team to be represented. First of all, it's, a, it's an exhibition. Let's not get crazy about the All-Star game. I think it's for a younger audience, and I think to have every team represented is important for the fan base and the well-rounding of it. Um, Shesterkin got burned a couple of times, mainly because of COVID. He missed some time, and they weren't going to send four Rangers. Um, because you can make the fact that how ridiculous it was that Zibanejad had to be the guy voted in. What what I would have liked to see is if Zibanejad wasn't going to go, that they take himself out of the voting, and then they could have put Shesterkin in there, so at least he would have a chance to get voted in. I wouldn't get too crazy about it, um, but I do think having every team represented, I do think, uh, is important. Um, Vitrafo, um, B. Tafro says, a devil's year isn't going well. Still Jack Hughes and Jesper Bratt are having basically point-per-game seasons. What kind of contract extension do you think Bratt will get? Well, it might be um, interesting to see well, whether it will rival Hughes. Probably not just because of where Hughes was picked. Uh, but I- I'm with you in the frustration with this Devils team. Again, they played well on Saturday, scoring seven goals against Carolina. Um, but they couldn't They couldn't follow it up with a win against the Los Angeles Kings. They've got so many young players. Here's the devastating thing. Um, they've got to be able to keep these young players, to be able to be as patient as they've been with this rebuild and, and lose any of these young players because of contract situations would be devastating. So all I could say is the sooner the better to be able to get those uh, guys done. Uh, Troy says, starting in the mid-'80s, we witnessed an evolution of goaltending with the Michigan-style goalies uh, with the Michigan-style goals by Zegras and Svechnikov, could we be on the verge of an evolution of offense? Uh, yeah. The, the, listen, there's just so much room out there now. The game is not nearly as physical as it's been in years past. 
you know, there was a time where you wouldn't have the room or the time to be able to try the lacrosse move. And now there's time. And I think it's great because I think offense is what really sells in sports. I mean, you saw it last night with the Bills and the Chiefs. That game is going to go down as one of the greatest games ever played because we want to see offense. We want points to be scored. We want to feel like teams are never out of it. For a long time, you know, when you led going into the third period, you never lost. Now you see teams, even good teams, not necessarily have perfect records when having even multiple goal leads going into the third period. You want to keep people hanging around feeling like they got a chance to see something and not turn off a goal, uh, a game that's 3-1 with 10 minutes to go in the game because you know a team might be able to make a comeback and score a flurry of goals. And and I think that's good for the sport. And I think the imagination and creativity, I know John Tortorella gets irritated about it, but to see those types of goals and, and the highlights being played everywhere around the country, I think you're you're absolutely starting to see a tremendous evolution of offense in this sport. It has definitely come at the physicality, and I know some of the old-school people are disappointed in that, but with the concussion protocol and all that, it's probably a good idea that we're moving in this direction than in a more physical plotting style that we saw for most of the mid-'90s into the mid-2000s. All right, this was kind of an unexpected podcast because we went kind of deep with EJ, but I thought it was important. Uh, so we'll get back to the candy store hopefully on Wednesday with a little bit more of actually breaking down the X's and O's of the sport. Best way to get in touch with me is at Don LaGreca, hashtag game misconduct. We're getting you know deeper into the season here. All-star break is coming around the corner. Looks like a lot of teams like the Rangers, they'll play a game on Tuesday and then not play another game until the 15th. They actually have a full two weeks off. Some of the Canadian teams will be able to make up some time in February. So very interesting month coming up between the stoppages and some teams not playing as much. So you gotta be you got to get the points when you can, and that's probably the message to every team that's playing right now. Looks like COVID's slowing down just a little bit. Most of the guys out of COVID protocol. We haven't seen as many uh, postponements recently, so hopefully we're on the uh, better end of that moving forward. So we'll have to cross our fingers and hope there. So we'll be back with you again on Wednesday. This was the Monday edition of Game Misconduct. This is the Game Misconduct Podcast with Don LaGreca.